A great writer can write about anything and make it work, and Califasane is a great writer. But when he writes about music, the words really sing. Welcome to Before the Cheering Started. I'm Bud Mishkin. It's a podcast all about the journey to success and professional fulfillment. The first jobs, obstacles overcome, the doubt, plan Bs, and the passion to push forward. For more than 20 years, Califasane has had a front row seat to all types of music and performances around the world, first as a pop music critic for the New York Times, and since 2008 as a staff writer at The New Yorker. The topics of his articles range from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. to Christian nationalism to boxing, but he primarily writes about music, and he does so in a compelling style. The love affair with music really started with a mixtape at the age of 14 and culminated in a critically acclaimed book in 2021 called Major Labels, A History of Popular Music in Seven Genres. And that's where we began our conversation. A great writer once wrote, you hear something that resonates with some fragment of your biography and you feel you wouldn't mind if those were the last sounds you ever heard. <laughs> Pretty good. <laughs> Thank you. That's When you said a great writer, I was worried you were accusing me of plagiarism. But no, yeah. I wrote that. <laughs> yeah, I just wanted to establish that. Uh, I, I always think one of the, the beauties of really good writing is it makes the reader either find out something that I never, never knew or understood or somehow understood but couldn't put into words. And so can you tell me that notion of hearing something, some piece of music, and it relates to a, a fragment of your biography, as you say, is that something you only came upon as an adult? Or is that something early on when you start listening to music that you have already have some sense of? Well, it's funny. In As I tell the story of loving music, I kind of talk about that as one way to love music, the idea that music that you're hearing something that, that resonates, that reverberates with your biography, the idea that you're hearing yourself reflected in a song. But for me, when I started getting obsessed with music on my 14th birthday, it was the opposite. The thing that was exciting about music to me before anything else, the thing that really got me hooked was the idea that music could be different, could be alien, could be odd, could be something else, could be exciting, could be threatening, could take you somewhere past yourself, outside of yourself. My, my folks were both born in Africa, my mother in South Africa and my, my father in Gambia in West Africa. Um, they're both university people, academics. And, you know, in that sense, if I had been looking for music that kind of reflected me, Maybe I would have listened to, you know, Yusu Ndor, the great Senegalese singer. You know, my parents certainly listened to some Afro pop at home, but that wasn't what captured me. What captured me was punk rock. And, you know, later I went back to try and think about why was it that as a 14 year old, this form of music at that time, it was 1990. So it was about 15 years old by that point. Why, why did that speak to me? And I think part of why it spoke to me was because it felt so different from anything that I knew or anything that I was. And so, you know, the part of the reason I talk about loving music as, as, as a form of finding something that resonates with you is because I also want to make clear that there are other ways to love music. And for me, loving music has often been actually kind of voyeuristic, has been a way 
of of sort of eavesdropping on what some other people are doing. Here's some here's some crazy people over halfway across the world that are doing some crazy thing. You want to know about it. And also for me as an immigrant, I moved to this country when I was five. I have often felt like I was eavesdropping on America, right? Here's what's happening in Nashville. Here's the hip hop scene they have in Houston. Here's what's going on in Los Angeles. And or even if it's down the street, the idea that you can sort of get into some different world by listening to music, the idea that you can not just eavesdrop, but maybe sometimes identify with people precisely because you know they're a little different than who you are, right? These people are totally unlike me, but in that in that moment when the song is playing, somehow I vibe to that, right? Whether it's a hip hop track or a crazy punk rock song or a commercial country ballad, you can sort of imagine yourself into a very different world. So even with the fact that you've been here since you're five years old and I've written for the New York Times, I've written for the New Yorker, do you still think Part of your writing, be it about music or anything else, has a little glimmer or more than a glimmer of the outsider's view looking in. Yeah, I mean, I think sometimes that uh, expresses itself in the fact that I, I might be a little more patriotic than many of my American-born friends, or which is to say, more interested in, more excited about America. There's a, I have a fundamental sense of wow, this place is amazing. This place is fascinating. Like, and and um. And so, yes, I think it definitely has sort of shaped my approach. I mean, it probably is consonant with my own personality in that, you know, maybe I'm just kind of a weird guy. So maybe I would have been an outsider no matter where I was. But um, yes, I think that I, I think there is something to that. And, and certainly I found after the fact, I was like, wow, I've spent a lot of my life really obsessed with music, often American popular music, partly as a way to try and understand things better, try and understand the country, try to understand cultural divisions, try to understand other people, other lives. So yes, I think that that fascination with America is probably something I share with a lot of immigrants. One person's weird, by the way, is another person's eclectic or interesting or intriguing or compelling. <laughs> sure. It's all in the terminology. Absolutely. Did I read correctly that actually even your name is connected to music and the, your father's music uh, growing up in Africa? Yeah, the, the, the griots, my, my father's uh, Mandinka, and in the Mandinka ethnicity, there is this uh, tradition of griots who sing the praises of great warriors. And he named me after uh, this figure who is the subject of two of the sort of central compositions in the griot tradition. Um, Kuruntu Kalifa and Kalifa Ba are both about this warrior, Kalifa Sane. And it, it's actually kind of an un unusual name in Gambia. Uh, and so, uh, you know, when I'm there, people do a bit of a double take. It's a little bit like being called Santa Claus or something. Um, but Sane, the last name is a, is a common last name. And, you know, uh, although all the Sanes are, you know, probably related distantly one way or another. Um, so yes, and he loved that griot music. And, and, and as I said, I kind of, I grew up with that surrounding me, but I also grew up very much wanting to listen to something different. To, so do you see, um, the love of the Ramones early on, is that uh, uh, an intentional rebellion or in some, some conscious way a rebellion? Yeah. And, and uh, if uh, some of the great African music is being played at home as you're growing up, how does one address or approach their parents and say, hey, that's great. Um, here's another band you might want to <laughs> consider listening to. Well, there's a couple things wrapped up in there. One is that, you know, I should say at the outset, I didn't have much to rebel against. My parents, you know, were great. And um, so it's not like I was had some anger against them. 
But that said, yeah, there was a sense that their world was a, you know, it was a, an intellectual, a polite world. And so the fact that, you know, there were these, you know, sort of rude, loud, obnoxious punk bands I could listen to. Yes, it was very different from my parents, but it was also, as much as it was a rebellion against them, it was also in some ways, a lot of the bands I listened to were American punk bands. And in that sense, it was a more American music than what my parents were listening to. And so in that sense, it was a form of conformity, right? A way of assimilating into the American culture that was around me, just as it was a way of in, other, in another sense, it was a way of rebelling. And I, I think that's that's often true, especially in punk rock, but in other genres as well, where rebellion and resistance can kind of coexist side by side um, with conformity and assimilation and even complicity. And, and often those things are a little hard to disentangle. And when you look at punk rock itself, punk rock is in some ways a kind of a rock and roll rebellion. And part of what that means is that, okay, we're going to sneer at these mainstream rock bands. You know, the members of the Sex Pistols are going to walk around with an I hate Pink Floyd t-shirt on, right? <laughs> That's the enemy. But it was also a kind of um, a reformist movement, an idea of we want to perfect rock and roll. We want to return rock and roll to how it used to be when it was great, right? And so in that sense, it was not just conservative, but really reactionary in a lot of ways. And let's go back to the 50s and the early 60s before rock and roll got bloated and progressive and all these other things. And so even in punk rock, you see those two urges side by side, a, a progressive urge and a reactionary urge, a, a rebellious urge, urge and a more kind of conformist urge. It's, I mean, it's the, um, it's the American immigrant story. It's certainly the New York immigrant story of mm -hmm. uh, yeah. that push and pull that, yeah. uh, you know, that uh, to Americanize, but also have respect for from where your you know, previous generations have come from. Is yeah. that something that's spoken or unspoken when you're growing up in your folks' home? Um, I think it was kind of unspoken. You know, I, my parents moved here because my dad got a great job at Harvard in 1981, and they weren't necessarily expecting to stay here. And I think that they had a certain amount of skepticism about America and American culture, especially in those early years. They had, you know, they had both grown up, they had lived in London, and they had maybe a more of a, a UK perspective. And so coming to America with these, you know, violent TV shows and big cars, and the whole thing might have struck them as somewhat crass. And, you know, over the years, they kind of came to, I think, realize what's great about America. And and certainly, you know, as the next generation, I, I, I had... As a lot of kids do, I had that sense of wanting to be more American than my parents and then later discovering the ways in which actually um, actually it was really interesting to see that they had a different perspective and obviously learning later how fascinating my parents' academic work was, which I didn't have, didn't have a great sense of when I was a kid. Um, I, I think one real difference, though, is that, you know, I don't think I, – I think when I was growing up, we weren't uh, – you know, that certainly wasn't the conversation, right? We certainly weren't sitting around the dinner table talking about this stuff in these terms. And, and again, I think something that's so important for a lot of kids and was so important for me was this idea of independence, right? The idea of like getting out and finding something of your own finding something that's yours alone. I think that was a, a lot of the appeal of punk rock for me, was that it was not my parents' music. It wasn't the music that most of the kids at school listened to. So it could just be like me and my best friend, Matt, and maybe a few other people, and we could be part of this thing and we could own it. And, and you know, so when I wrote this book, Major Labels, which is about kind of the different genres and the way they push and pull against each other, um, 
I realized that that for a lot of us, when we love music, that is one of the things that we love about music is the idea that you can have the sort of intimacy that's only possible when you're part of an exclusive world, right? It's only possible when you have the sense that me and the other people who are listening to this, we're a little bit different from the rest of the world. And, you know, most of us have those two desires simultaneously. We want music to fulfill those two desires, right? The exclusive desire, let's be different. Let's be part of a community. And also an, an inclusive desire, like let's, let's be free, Let's let's move around and we can all kind of listen to the same thing. And and you know, that push and that pull is part of what creates these tribes, these communities. And in, in, in pop music terms, those communities tend to be called musical genres. How old were you when you spent the summer uh, in Gambia or went to I, Gambia for for yeah, a summer? I spent the summer in Gambia that would have been uh, just after my 16th birthday. I, I lived there and learned to play the kora, which is a, a traditional um, Mandinka instrument. Um, never got very good at it, but it was fascinating to see a different perspective. Um, but that said, like I remember that summer. It's funny, my, my strongest – I lived with some family friends, and my strongest musical memories of that summer weren't about the kora, but it was about going back to my room and putting on like a punk rock tape – on the boombox and playing it for my friend that I was living with. And he was kind of flummoxed and he was playing some of the R and B and hip hop that he was listening to, which at the time I was much less interested in. And so I remember that as a kind of like a pop music cultural clash as almost probably more vividly than I remember the Cora lessons. And certainly if you gave me a Cora today, nothing good would happen. Well, I hadn't planned on it in this virtual interview, (laughs) but you know, you never know. We may have a surprise at the end. Um, if we're if we're lucky in life, our parents send us out into the world, and I mean the world, to see another part of the world. Mm-hmm. But uh, I would imagine going to Gambia, even with your, your parents both uh, uh, born and 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 bred in in um, in Africa, uh, are there moments? You're 16 years old. You're living in the United States. Are there moments before that trip of wait? You want to send me where? Or did you kind of understand this is why I'm going and you had you made your peace with it early on? Oh yeah, it was it was it was interesting. It was fun. It wasn't, you know, if, if it had been up to me, you know, if you told me like, oh, you could go live in New York City and go see lots of punk rock shows, that would have been probably more exciting to me. Um but no, I don't I don't remember it being particularly daunting. It, it's funny when I look back now. You know, my, my dad is born in this tiny little village upriver in the Gambia, literally dodging hippos in the river when he goes swimming. And, you know, he lives all over the world and eventually makes his way um, to the U.S. And it makes me realize, man, I've stayed really close to home. Like he was at he was at Harvard, then he moved to Yale. I was living in Connecticut. I went back to Harvard for college, moved down here from to New York. You know, it's all within a few hours of each other. So in that sense, I'm you know I'm very much unlike them in that I've stayed so close to home, and it makes me realize how, in that sense, unadventurous my own life has been. This morning, I and I, I apologize for the mispronunciation, but I um, I listened to the album. A Kleishaw Debon? That sounds about right. Please correct it. Correct the... uh... Now, if we're lucky in life, again, we have parents who play their music and and just bring the joy of music to us, Mm -hmm. regardless of what the music is. And I know in our household, there was a date for my father when each of his three children came to him and said, okay, this classical music you like, it seems pretty good. This Beethoven guy, he's okay. You know, what should I listen to? And I yeah. was the, 
I was the third of three to make the, uh, you know, to go to him and say, okay, you know, they're not as good as the Beatles, of course, but let's not, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> right. Um, that album is, by the way, stunningly beautiful. Yeah. And a connection to your father, or even reading the story of how you played that album for him in his last days. Yeah. And, and for me, it really is, it, you know, it really was circular, which is to say that, you know, I, I didn't have great interest in that music when I was a teenager. Um, you know, I got into I got into punk rock at the exclusion of everything. Right. That was the appeal of punk rock for me. It's like, oh, it's not you know, you can listen to this and say everything else is bad. Right. Not just aesthetically bad, but like morally bad. Here's all the bad music. Punk rock is the only good music. And and through that, I kind of then came to love hip hop. I was like, oh, wow, this rebellious spirit of punk rock. Like it was actually there all the time in the hip hop I'd listened to when I was a little kid. Great. And, you know, got into dance music. I was like, oh, this dance music, this techno stuff is actually even more radical than this other stuff. And, you know, but also got into R&B. Because hip hop helped me hear the kind of tradition of R and B, I was like, "Wow, these R and B records are really beautiful. They're really audacious." You know, listening to like the Stevie Wonder records and things like that for the first time, and it also helped me hear just like pop music in general. It helped me develop an appreciation for just like mainstream, well written songs. It helped me understand the appeal of country music and so in an odd way this very exclusive world of punk helped me list helped me hear the beauty in all sorts of other places including eventually you know some of the same african or african influenced music uh that my dad had listened to when i was a kid and i think um and, and part of what i wanted to explore in the book is the way that you know sometimes sometimes we want we want that music that that re represents us, that reflects us, but but that sometimes we do want the opposite, and how how strong that desire for for weirdness or for difference can be. How you know, I, I talk at one point about going to one of the first punk shows I saw. There was a bunch of skinheads at the club, and I was like, oh, like what's going on? I've been taught to, I've been taught that skinheads are like neo Nazis who want to kill me what's happening is am i safe in this environment and that was such an exciting moment for me right being in that room and that trying to figure it out and the fact the idea that there's like real danger um that was really seductive to me and, and so you know I, I think it's always important you know when we're talking about music is is that we can have very complicated reasons for liking what we like. And sometimes things that you'd think would be repellent turn out to be, you know, turn out to be really part of the attraction of music. And, and certainly that was true for me. Can you tell me the details or the discussion, if you recall it, about how it came to be that your mom gave you a ride to a Ramones concert? Because <laughs> yeah, just that sentence alone, <laughs> you know, an entire book might be able to be written about just that one sentence alone. Yeah, I guess I was like 14 and they were playing Toad's Place, which is this venerable rock club in New Haven. And I believe the concert was had some sort of restricted admission. I think you had to be 18 years, 19, I can't remember, something like that in order to get in. And I went to the club like a few days before the show to find out if there was like any wiggle room mainly. And they were kind of like, well, if you have your legal guardian here, you can attend the <laughs> show if they're looking after you. I was like, oh, great. Um, my friend... <laughs> My friend Matt wasn't quite so lucky with his parents, but yeah, I convinced my mom to come and bring me and she, uh, we, we were standing in what turned out to be kind of like the pit um, and she was not really up for that much pushing and shoving. So she <laughs> retreated to the bar on one side of the room and I was just there in the pit watching the Ramones being like, 
this is the best night of my life. Um, and, and it was great. And I still, you know, I still get that kind of excitement when I go to concerts now. There is something about being in the place, being in the room. And, and it's also it's also part of what's funny to me now is that I thought of the Ramones as like the opposite of like the Rolling Stones records that my friends were listening to. But, you know, the irony is that by 1990, you know, the Ramones were something like 15 years old. They were basically a classic rock band. Right. And this thing that seemed so radical and so underground and whatever to me, you know, was basically this like venerable classic rock band from just down the road. We were at that point about a year, 18 months away from Nirvana coming along and sort of repopularizing punk so that the cool punk rock Doc Martin boots that I had, you know, six months after I got them, like other people had them too. And I, I guess I, I thought of my own punk rock conversion as being entirely separate from what happened in the culture with the rise of Nirvana and grunge and everything else. But of course, those things were actually created and I was surfing the same cultural currents that everyone else was, even if I was in a slightly different place on it. In the car ride home, your mom say, "Hey, that you know that I want to be sedated. That's that's a, <laughs> let's uh, discuss that. Is that a is that in the Mixolydian or is that in the Dorian well, or?" My mother is a linguist, so she uh -huh. certainly. But but I'm not sure that she could have actually made out the words as clearly <laughs> as I could have. But you know, my, again, it wasn't you know in with the kind of parents I had at the time that it was you know you would have had to do a lot better than listen to some punk rock records to freak my parents out right like they were like oh yeah he listens to some music we don't really like it it's fine and in fact like i was not punk in a uh social or cultural sense i was a uh, i was a good boy so i wasn't do i wasn't you know it's was like might as well have been stamp collecting except that i was collecting these little punk rock cassettes so yeah it wasn't it wasn't something that that they were very taken aback by and they were um they were patient enough just to know that yeah our, our kids into this weird thing he seems to enjoy it that seems fine I've uh, done interviews with many uh, children of people who have emigrated here, and they've talked about, uh, for want of a better word, pressure. Mm -hmm. Pressure of uh, parents who have said to them, hey, you know, we, we came here for a better life, whatever better, however you define that. Growing up, did you feel any of that from them? Like a pressure to whatever you do, there's an opportunity here that perhaps we wouldn't have had back back in the old country and uh, a pressure to succeed. No, I mean, I think there were definitely expectations. But, you know, again, we came here because, you know, my dad had made this extraordinary journey from mm -hmm. from a tiny village upriver in the Gambia to getting a scholarship to study in America and then getting a PhD in, in London and then getting some academic positions and then eventually getting a tenure track job at Harvard. Um, so it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like he had, you know, it wasn't as if he had put off his career ambitions. And so it was all on me, right? Because he was, you know, working in a very difficult menial labor to support the family. Like he had an amazing job and he was at Harvard. My mother was teaching at Harvard too. And then at Yale. So I, I didn't have any of that. If any, you know, there were certainly expectations that you're going to, you know, you're not going to mess around. You're going to, you're going to, uh, do a good job at school, but no, that wasn't really a that wasn't really a point of conflict. And and even for me, you know, they sort of let me follow what I was interested in. You know, it wasn't it wasn't the kind of you know, given that my father was a historian of religion and my mother ended up uh, teaching Zulu at Yale for thirty years, they were in no position to tell me to have a an, an, a particularly practical major in college. Um, you know, they're intellectuals, so. Um, right. 
yeah, when I studied literature or decided that, you know, instead of going to grad school that I wanted to, you know, move down to New York. And I was working at an academic journal at the time called Transition, which was um, affiliated with the FOM department at Harvard. And then after a few years, I got hired at the New York Times as a pop music critic. So, yeah, I think they had, you know, I think they had, if they were getting, if they were getting worried about my trajectory, they never mentioned it to me. How about you? Uh, when you're first going off to Harvard mm -hmm. or maybe in the early years at Harvard, are you worried about your trajectory? Are there moments of like, wait, what am I, what am I going to do here? And was being a writer at that point a goal or were, was it all kind of fuzzy at that point? I mean, it was definitely somewhat fuzzy, but two things. One is that like I had sort of grown up there, right? We moved to this country when I was five, like, and I remember walking back and forth through Harvard Yard. We lived for the first year in this country. We lived across the street from the Harvard Divinity School. So it wasn't, wasn't intimidating to me. If anything, it was kind of like, you know, not that I was sick of it exactly, but that was a world I knew. And so... But you also have to understand that when I arrived on the campus of Harvard in the fall of 93, like pretty much all I cared about was punk rock music. Like that was it. I was, you know, I joined the radio station, which was this incredibly, um, there was actually an entrance exam and a year long sort of like pseudo academic course you had to take in order to become a DJ where they would teach you all about punk rock. And I was like, oh, these are my people. This is everything I love. Um, I took a year off in the middle of college to work at a record store, two record stores, actually. I was in some bad bands. I was helping promote some punk rock concerts. Like that was my whole focus. And it was, so it was only, you know, it was only about halfway through that I started to get more interested in writing and editing. I started working at this academic journal. Um, I started to write a little bit about music, both about punk rock and about hip hop, which I'd gotten kind of newly excited about. And actually it ended up being hip hop more than punk rock that made me want to write about music. Um, because the, the punk rock I listened to was fairly obscure often, as you can imagine, maybe. And so, um, you know, I didn't always feel like I needed to tell the world about it, right? The idea of like, oh, there's this band from halfway across the country and they make a horrible noise and they scream indecipherable lyrics like you should check it out. It's like, well, no, actually, you don't need to check it out. You probably won't enjoy it. It's fine. Whereas a lot of the hip hop I was excited about was hugely popular. These are, you know, albums selling millions and millions of copies. And I felt like it wasn't getting the kind of critical respect it deserved. And so I had a, I had a kind of a fire in my belly to tell people about this music, to write about this music, to communicate about this music that I didn't necessarily have with punk rock. And so I think that that's part of what really kickstarted my interest in, you know, trying to get a little more serious about writing about music was I wanted to learn more about hip hop, but I also felt like there was an opportunity to, you know, tell the world about this thing that was happening in America that seemed so exciting to me that I felt like even some of the people who wrote about music, even some of the people who wrote about hip hop didn't necessarily love some of the stuff that I loved. And so that seemed like a real opportunity, you know, I make it sound like a moral crusade. It, it was also, or perhaps uh, mainly, it was, it was a market opportunity. It was like, here's this really interesting, really popular thing that's not getting the coverage it should des it deserves. And that was kind of my way in. As someone who also did college radio, uh, I would say the difference between your college radio experience and mine is you said you had to take a year-long exam. Basically, I had to I had to know how to turn the lights on <laughs> <Yeah>, that... <laughs> and turn the board on and 
play the record. Yeah, Harvard had this thing called the Record Hospital, and uh, yeah, so you'd show up, and in order to even be, uh, you know, in order to even be able to try out, you had to take a, you had to take an exam with with a, there was like a listening comprehension, there were essay questions. Um, and then the people who did well on the exam were selected to take, it was like, a, you know, it was a semester long, like it was like a course. There were lectures, I think every Sunday night about different aspects of punk rock history. And then there'd be like a listening assignment. So you'd, you'd, you'd attend the lecture and then you'd come back at your leisure during the week to listen to these five or 10 records and write down what you thought about them. And then the next week there'd be another lesson. And so it was a, I mean, it was also, it was at a time when, you know, it was, pre-Spotify, right? So it was a time when it was hard to access music. So part of the thrill was you had access to all these records, but it was also a way of telling people like, no, there's a history here. The the thing we're doing here, it's not, you know, you don't know everything and you should learn about this music. You can decide you don't like some of it. You can decide you don't like most of it, but you should learn about the history and, and, and get some context. And so that's where I started to really understand some context about where things came from. I'm always fascinated by people, either if they went on to become musicians or not, who were in early bands, as you put it, bad bands. And I'm always fascinated by the names of the bands and the names of the bands that weren't chosen. Like, you know, picking out a name of a band is not easily done, as I understand it. Quite conveniently, I've forgotten all the names of the bands, but I I, <laughs> I do want to stipulate that, you know, there should be a level beneath bad, right? There's bad bands that like... You know, we can argue about taste, right? There's bad bands that we could say, like, aren't that good. The bands I was in were below the bad level, which is to say they we never had fans. I was never in a band where someone who wasn't friends with me voluntarily came to see me play music, right? It was just like if my friends were there, they would sit through our little set and then they'd go listen to, you know, some of my friends' bands that were actually good. So it wasn't it wasn't like, oh, we had a small fan base. No, I'm talking about like actually zero fan base. It was just about being involved in that world and and participating. And, you know, I realized I was better at other parts of it, right? I realized I was a better, I was a better DJ than I was a musician. I was a better lecturer than I was a DJ. Um, And, and so, yes, it was never, it wasn't central to me. I've realized over the years, I was like, oh, I don't have that thing of having something to express musically that I need to get out. But, you know, I, I came to think like, oh, if I could make a living like talking about other people's music, I was like, wow, that's actually more fun and uh, better suited to my skill set. And that eventually leads to a job doing such at the New York Times. Yes. And basically you have either an actual physical credential or just the credential to pretty much get in wherever you'd like. Not, not, not pretty much. Right. Because like if that's your full time job, then, yes, you're getting you can get a free ticket to any show you want. And if 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 you encounter a publicist who, for whatever reason, doesn't want to give you a free ticket, you could just charge it back to the newspaper like this is your job. So it's not. And, and you know, it's exciting. It stops feeling like a, a special privilege. It's just like, you know, if you're a book reviewer, you get all the books. And if you're a music reviewer, you get all the music and you get to go to all the shows. And so it, it never got boring going to shows, but it definitely felt in a good way like going to work. Um, I remember getting used to this idea. I started in 2002 full time. I remember getting used to the idea of going to shows by myself, which at the beginning would feel awkward because everyone else is there with someone and they're drinking and they're hanging out and I'm there with my notepad. But, you know, I, I got over that in like a month or two. And so even now when I go to the sh- go to a concert, I'm kind of like, 
I'm like, oh yeah, I'm in my work. I'm in my workplace. Even though I'm not, you know, at the time I was going like five nights a week. It's nothing like that now. But um, yeah, that that sense of yeah, I can go here and like something interesting is going to happen on stage. It'll be interesting even if it's bad, and um, I'm going to pay attention to it. And and one thing that never changed is I always learn something when I go see live music. Even if I think I know the albums, I think I understand the singles. I've watched videos. I think I really understand. There's something about it's partly being forced to pay attention for an hour at a time or longer. And it's partly about seeing like the social dynamics and seeing how a person is on stage, how they relate to the other members of their band. If it's a band. Yeah. I always learn something when I go see live music. You got a lot of attention when you're at the times for the article, the rap against rockism. Yeah. I'm curious if that's the moment where you, it really sinks in about the power of your position and your thoughts, or did that happen prior to that? Well, there was something. I mean, look, it's a surreal job to start with, right? You're the pop. You're not the. I mean, John Perellis was a senior pop music critic, amazing guy, and as as nice and helpful and kind and generous a colleague as you could want. But I was a pop music critic at the New York Times, which is an absurd job, right? The idea of like, oh, you're taking to the pages of the New York Times to tell people which albums are good, which like which singers are good. Like, what a crazy sort of um, audacious thing to think that you could do. Um, so. Yes. And, and also remember 2002, this is before social media and I'm, I'm actually still not on social media though. Obviously I consume it like everyone else. So at the time you didn't really know what the response was, you know, you'd write something, they'd print a million or so newspapers and send them around the world. They'd put the article on their website and you'd be like, I hope people like this. I, I don't know. And, and often I would write something and I wouldn't really be sure what the response was. And I, you know, in, in a sense, maybe that was good. I kind of just like could ignore that and think about what I was writing next. And so um, when I wrote The Rap Against Rockism, I think that's 2004 um, in the arts and leisure section, it was this article about this concept of rockism, which had actually been popularized back in the early 1980s in the UK, which is the idea that there is this sort of unspoken ideology among music critics and maybe listeners more broadly, where all kinds of music is being judged against the standards of rock and roll. And so this assumption that like, if you see someone kind of scruffy with a guitar, that that connotes authenticity. And if you see, whereas if you see someone wearing like tight clothes and makeup and big hair singing disco, that's somehow inauthentic, right? Or the idea that like being good live is really important, but being good at making music videos is somehow silly or a distraction. And, you know, I was kind of writing an argument that like, no, we should, we should, we should be aware of different ways to enjoy music because different kinds of music will give us different kinds of pleasure. And that that rock and roll pleasure is a pleasure, but it's not the only pleasure. And so after I published that article, you know, I was hoping people would like it. And yeah, kind of in the weeks, it was sort of slowly in the weeks and the months and the years afterwards, the kind of the responses kept coming or someone would write a follow-up story or get mentioned in some other story. And so, yes, it, it became something that a bunch of people responded to, which is cool, which is like the most you can ask for if you're going to send words out into the world. The idea that someone would actually read them and feel moved to respond is kind of a best case scenario. And a lot of people have responded, not just to the writing about music at the Times and now with The New Yorker and, and your book, uh, Major Labels. Were you confident that it was going to work all along or was there ever kind of a plan B of, I know I love doing this, but if for whatever reason it doesn't work, maybe I would consider doing 
decks. Well, as a fan of popular music and pop music, I try to be respectful of market signals. Um, you know, I've learned a lot from songs that go up the pop charts that I wouldn't have expected to become hits. And I learn something often. Sometimes I learn to love them. Sometimes I hear something that I didn't initially hear. I'm like, oh, this is really resonating. Oh, that's interesting. So um, I've always been somewhat conscious of that with my own writing, which is to say I've never been the kind of person that is confident enough that I would keep plugging away for 20 years if I got no encouragement. And so when I moved to New York in 99, I, you know, I... I probably in my mind gave myself, you know, maybe five years or something that if, if, if no one's, if no one really enjoys my writing, if no one really wants to publish it, like maybe I'll need to figure something else out. And um, so it was, and so I was enormously pleased when I got like first, my first dream job at the New York times. And then my second dream job um, as a staff writer at the New Yorker. I don't think, I don't think any writer can honestly tell you they're confident, right? Like, you know, I'm working on a piece right now. Am I confident about it? I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm hoping it all comes together. And, and I think, I think that's a probably, that's, that's a familiar feeling for anyone doing anything creative or semi-creative. But I do think over the years I came to feel like when I listen, especially with music, other things too, but especially with music, like I really love it. I, I, I think about it a lot. And at the times I came to be confident that if I kind of did the necessary research before I went to see a concert, for instance, and then went to the show, like I was going to have something to say about it. So that's the kind of pressure. It's not the pressure like, oh, am I, am I important? Am I this or that? It, it was literally like, am I going to have 440 words in the morning? about this concert that are interesting. Am I going to have, well, at the time we were assigned in column inches, 44 words per inch. So, you know, you'd be assigned a 10 inch review at four at 440 words or a 12 inch review at 528. And so, yes, that was more the kind of confidence in a way, right? Is, is, can I do this actual task, right? If I'm assigned a piece now, oh, it's a 4,500 word piece about a book. Can I execute that? So yeah, in that small sense, yes, obviously I became a little more confident in that this is the the thing, really the only thing I have experience doing. Um, but I, I wouldn't call that a broad confidence that like, oh, everyone loves my work or anything. I believe you've written about the fact that you saw your dad as a bridge builder mm -hmm. between uh, in his work. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious if there's a thread there, if you and your writing see building bridges, both in the writing for The New Yorker, but also in writing major labels, like building bridges between different types of music. Is, yeah, is there some kind of thread there? Yes. I mean, I mean, the first thing I'd say is there, there are some music writers that, that are, do their best work writing for fellow fans. Um, you know, if you're a hip hop writer, you, especially in the old days, you could write for a hip hop publication and you'd be speaking to fellow hip hop fans about the music. And so there's some shared knowledge and some shared cultural references and assumptions. I've always found myself writing for kind of mainstream outlets, which is to say, I've always been conscious of the fact that most of the people reading what I'm writing about are not necessarily fans of the thing I'm writing about, right? Not only not fans, but have maybe never heard of it, have maybe never heard it, will maybe have no desire to ever hear it even after they read whatever I wrote. Um, so I've always tried to write about music in a way that's interesting to people who aren't music fans or aren't fans of that particular kind of music. And 
certainly that's what I do at The New Yorker, right? It's kind of what The New Yorker is known for, right? We're going to give you a, an in-depth article about some subject that you might not think you're interested in, but you'll go with it because the article is interesting. That's that's the idea. And that's the, certainly that's what I've tried to learn to do there. And so, yeah, when I sat down to write a history of popular music, it's a little bit daunting because like everyone knows something about popular music pretty much. <laughs> a lot of people are an expert on some or another artist or era or genre, but then there's an, a lot that to most people, most of it is pretty obscure, right? You might you might know your Motown forwards and backwards, but you might not be so up to date on death metal or on, you know, German techno. And so, <laughs> yes, I tried in major labels, I tried to write a book that would be sort of fun and informative and also provocative in hopes that, you know, similarly, experts could enjoy it and maybe find something to argue with. And if you weren't an expert... You know, by the time you get to the end of my chapter on dance music, you'll have a sense of why house and techno are different, and maybe even more broadly, why those kinds of minute, seemingly nonsense differences between different kinds of dance music, like, why does that matter? And why do those, why do people insist on those differences? In, in the case of, not to leave people hanging, in the case of dance music, part of what I say is that dance music is built around parties, people coming together, dancing together. And if you're going to have a party, if you're going to go to a party, it matters a lot who else is in the crowd. And that in dance music, these small little differences of rhythmic patterns, of where the kick drum is, what kind of samples they use, that can actually change who shows up to party. And so that these that these kind of seemingly um, very abstract differences between house and progressive house, and, you know, techno and and minimal techno and house and deep house, these, these, these genres, if you're in that world, they connote different sorts of crowds and therefore different kinds of experiences that you might have on your night out. So hopefully things like that are interesting, even if you're not going to go home and put on a great two-hour house music mix tonight. Although I would recommend everyone would go home and, and put on a great two-hour house music mix tonight. Is there a way you can point to some of those early experiences that we've discussed uh, both uh, growing up, you know, in, in Ghana and then Scotland and coming here at the age of five and growing up here, your parents are academics, that early excitement about music mm -hmm. and specifically punk music and the mixtape at 14 and some of those early experiences in the class at Harvard. Uh, can you say that those experiences have a tangible effect on what you do now and also how you approach your work now. It, it's funny. Well, the main thing I feel is that there's a, that for me, it feels like the same hunger, like the same hunger and curiosity I had when I was 14 to be like, literally, how can I jam as much music into my ears as possible? Right. My, <laughs> my, my mom would give me five bucks to buy a sandwich when I went downtown to New Haven. And I'd be like, no, I'm going to skip lunch. I'm going to buy an extra cassette instead. I just want to hear everything. I want to try and read all these fanzines and figure out what's going on. That's the same way I feel now on Fridays when all the new releases hit Spotify, right? So it, it, it's more it, – I'm more struck by the extent to which I haven't really changed, that I'm, I'm trying to figure stuff out. Unlike a lot of people my age, I still listen to a ton of new music, new as in release today. We're speaking on a Friday. Um, and so in, in that sense, it feels like a real continuation of that. And, and sometimes I'm puzzled that um, – I, I realize that's unusual sometimes when I talk to other people who don't necessarily have that same thing, who have maybe have matured a little bit since they were teenagers. And I'm like, nah, 
I'm still, you know, maybe you knew me back in, in high school when I was, you know, writing term papers and obsessed with music, but basically I still write term papers and I'm still obsessed with music. And so it feels in that sense, um, like things haven't changed all that much in terms of, but in terms of training, no, I think, I think like for a lot of people, there's a certain amount of serendipity, um, in, um, in college, I started working at this, uh, this journal called Transition, a, a journal of race and culture. And I, I worked with a guy named Michael Vasquez, who was uh, sort of who was running it at the time, who, who taught me a lot about editing and writing and what was interesting and how you could be how to make things fun and readable and, um, you know, and a little bit mischievous, which is still kind of what I aspire to do when I write. So that was that was certainly important to me. And obviously, like hearing those lectures about punk rock and and, and starting to think about music and and the way it fit into history and, and the, the the kinds of arguments you could have the the fact that the fact that all these stories could be more. Um, complicated than you think, right? Like that something like punk rock, which seems so anti-orthodox, unorthodox also has its own orthodoxy and what does it mean to uphold the orthodoxy of punk rock isn't it more punk rock to to rebel against the punk rock orthodoxy and if you do that where do you do you end up back in the mainstream and some sort of complicated double rebellion um so those kinds of questions are still the sorts of things that i think about now when i'm thinking about you know uh you know something a modern person in the world of hip-hop or dance music or, or country music or whatever so in that sense i guess i do see the through line i don't know if i see it as training necessarily because so much of what I learned came outside of school right it was it was just like talking to friends it was sitting around with fellow radio DJs it was like trying to publish a fanzine with with, with my friends so that was a lot of I think that was definitely a lot of what shaped me um, and I don't know how much of that is actionable for someone else except to realize that if you lean into the stuff that you're obsessed with and the stuff that you're curious about you know, that's somewhere where you might have an advantage, right? So that's somewhere where, you know, most people probably aren't obsessed with the thing you're obsessed with. They're curious about the thing that you're curious about. And so it can be a real advantage, even if it doesn't seem like it at the time to really, um, to, to stick with that. And that's certainly what I did. I'm, I'm wearing right now a Descendants t-shirt, which was one of my favorite punk bands when I was 14. Still one of my favorite punk bands today. I don't think Mature has anything to do with it. <laughs> Seriously, I think it's plenty mature to love what you do. And that passion absolutely comes through on the page. Oh, thank you. And so uh, you nailed it. The notion of I'm going to read an article by you and I'm not sure who the musician is, <laughs> uh, but that's almost not irrelevant, but it's going to be beautifully written and it's going to make me think. Oh, good. And that's that's great writing. Well, th and, that's uh, what I'm hoping to do. And, and it's that, that curiosity. Hopefully, you'll be happy to know that someone out there somewhere is doing an interesting thing, even if it's not for you necessarily. The fact that it's for someone, hopefully, is interesting enough. You've achieved it. Thank you. And uh, we'll end on that note. And also, once again, to confirm, to give props, that your mom drove you to a Ramones concert at the age of 14. <laughs> she definitely did. I'll, I'll thank her again for it when I see her this weekend. Califasane. You can read him in the New Yorker magazine and his critically acclaimed 2021 book, Major Labels, A History of Popular Music in Seven Genres. Before the Cheering Started is a production of June 14th Productions and Gemini 13 Productions. This episode was created and written by me, Guitar playing, that's me as well. No extra charge. I'm Bud Mishkin, and this is Before the Cheering Started. Thanks for joining us on The Journey.